As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It is Henry Zamoda, and uh, I hope everyone had a happy Easter or is having a happy Passover right now. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, here's your friendly reminder to rate and review the podcast. Uh, right now, we are currently at 98 reviews. 98. We are so close to that 100 mark, so we need two more reviews to get that up to that 100 mark which has been a goal for a long time. So um, if you haven't rated the podcast yet, if you're on iTunes, uh, please go ahead and uh, just pull up the rating and give it a whatever you think deserves. I prefer a five-star, obviously, but uh, I believe in uh, I believe uh, in markets and, and incentives. So, you know, I want your honest feedback, but obviously a five-star goes a long way. But uh, I hope everyone's having a really good day. Um, I wanted to get an episode out on Friday, but... There's been so much going on in the news that I've been a bit overwhelmed on what type of topic to pick. Um, I wanted to revert back and do a history podcast, but uh, doing a straight-up history podcast, believe it or not, it takes a shitload of research. And um, I wasn't able to get the research done ahead of time uh, with the uh, holiday over the weekend uh, or just other things I had to do at the end of the week. So I apologize for that. Um, another thing, the reason why I didn't, another, I actually, here's, a, to be completely honest, um, I actually recorded a podcast and I ovened it before I released it. I recorded one on Thursday uh, during the Mueller uh, or the uh, conclusion of uh, the Mueller investigation on Russiagate, but I didn't release it. And the reason why I didn't release it is because I haven't been, I haven't touched that subject since I started this podcast. I haven't talked about Russiagate. Maybe I made some comments about it, my opinions on it, but I never did like an investigation on Russiagate. Um, There's never been a uh, guest who has been seriously um, investigating Russiagate on this show. So I just didn't really think it was appropriate for me to be delivering that information, especially since I haven't been covering it. And uh, what I found myself doing was basically i i was just kind of re i was just regurgitating things from uh journalists such as mike tracy and glenn grinwald and it just wasn't a unique take um those guys obviously have been doing a great job on it so i just felt like it wasn't necessary for me to to, to, to chime in uh just because i really couldn't deliver any any more significant insight on the situation so 
no Russiagate. Um, I'm sure you guys have, have heard so much about it that you're sick at it at this point. So I'm going to continue that and never talk about Russiagate ever again. Well, who knows? We'll probably talk about it again. But we'll never do an episode on Russiagate. <laughs> watch watch um, a week from now we do a Russiagate episode. Uh, just because it's in demand. But uh, yeah, we're avoiding that subject because everyone else is doing it. We want to be different. We want to concentrate on international news and history. So we're sticking to our guns. Um, Now, a problem that I'm having is that there's so many things going on right now um, in basically every single part of the world that there's some type of development. And um, I I don't know what to tackle. I I, I really don't know what to tackle. Um, Just to give you kind of a little bit of a, of uh, like what's what's in my head, so there is obviously there's uh, Afghanistan peace talks. Um, those have been postponed indefinitely, so we need to do something on that. There has been the uh, the the riots in Algeria, so we need to do that. And then there's also been a um, there's also a situation going on in, in the Sudan. Um, and then, of course, Libya right now is in uh, full-scale war with uh, with Haftar, and I wanted to give a fresh take on that as well. Um, but the thing is, though, is that I'm not an expert in any of these topics, so what I need to do to, to, to deliver the best show is to get an expert. So right now, I'm in the process of just finding experts in all these, uh, all these various subjects, and uh, so I can just deliver the best stuff to you guys, uh, because you deserve the best content. Hopefully that doesn't sound corny, but you guys deserve the best content and I want to deliver it. So I'm going to get, I, I'm going to be getting experts on to talk about those various subjects. Um, we'll continue to do our stuff on Syria, Yemen, Saudi and everything else. But, um, the new developments will, will find someone, uh, who is, who is, uh, better for the job. Um, something that I found very funny before I touch on the main topic of today, of today was that. Uh, North Korea, uh, North Korea wants to talk again about negotiating with the U.S. to denuclearize and all of that and, and get sanction relief. But they requested that Mike Pompeo not be there because he acts like a baby. They said he's too, he's too immature to join the negotiation talks, so they don't want him there. Which I find, I actually kind of find very hilarious. You would have thought that would have been John Bolton. Um, the, the way the dynamic, or at least how I perceive the, the Bolton, uh, Pompeo dynamic is that Pompeo plays the role of good cop. Bolton plays the role of a uh, bad cop. But, uh, I think in this case, Pompeo has been kind of, uh, just making very strong demands on North Korea. Uh, they said that he's acting like a, like a mob boss. So <laughs> I'm surprised they know what a mob boss is, but, uh, yeah, I found that hilarious. All right, so I want to get into an update on Syria. So Syria is facing a major fuel shortage right now. And uh, the reason why they're facing a fuel shortage is because Iran cut their credit line to them back in October because of U.S. sanctions. Uh, no oil tanker has come into Syrian ports in the past six months. And that's according to the Syrian oil ministry. Uh, the government-controlled regions in Syria... They're only producing 24,000 barrels a day, which is only 20% of what the country needs. So they're having some huge problems, and they're beginning to ration oil right now. Um, that's how bad the situation is getting. Um, 
because of the the suspension of the Iranian credit line, uh, Syria now needs a, a like a lot of liquid finance in order to increase its imports of oil, um, especially because their oils are declining, and also because a lot of their oils located in the Kurdish region of Syria right now, which is currently under U.S. control, uh, the SDF. So they're kind of and uh, a bit of a crisis. Well, what I think is going to happen over here is that they're probably going to end up there's going to be some black markets that that are created in Syria. Um, that's what always happens when there's these heavy sanctions. They always hurt really, really bad at first, and Syria's facing them uh, right now. But down the line, there's always these oil black markets that form. And also, I think it at some point over the next, uh, I would say, one to two years, probably shorter than that, um, I think that the Kurdish region, the SDF, is going to negotiate a peace with the Assad government. So I think that they're going to join back, and that's where a lot of the oil is located. Um, Syria is not a big oil producer at all. Um, their economy is a knowledge-based economy, kind of like any other Western country. They're uh, not like Iraq. They're not like Saudi Arabia. They're not like any of these Middle Eastern oil giants. Um, they had to develop a very unique and dynamic economy to, to uh, survive. So I don't think this is the end or, or, or a killer for them. But another big thing that's going on right now is that um, there there seems to be, or people are calling it a ISIS comeback. So um, there has been over 60 Syrian troops who have been killed in the past 48 hours um, in eastern Syria. And um, I'm just going to read right from Jason Ditz from Antiwar.com. Um, a flurry of ISIS attacks over the past 48 hours, which the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights is describing as the deadliest such attack since the fall of the Caliphate, has killed over 60 Syrian troops and other pro-government fighters. The attacks hit several provinces across Syria's north and east with a Thursday strike in Dirizor, starting a series of moves which also saw them hit Syrian troops near the city of Homs, as well as forces near the oft-contested ancient city of Palmyra. ISIS doesn't control any specific territory in any of these areas, but in the past has had presence in all of them. Okay, so I don't need to go any more into it. So what's going on right now is that eastern Syria is all desert, and all the jihadists are still located. They're, they're still outskirts of many, many jihadists. And they are basically doing these hit-and-run run attacks, and they're killing Syrian troops. Now, people are calling it an ISIS comeback. I wouldn't call it an ISIS comeback. They don't have a caliphate. That's destroyed. That's gone. They don't have any control over any type of land, or, or, or they, there's still some pockets, but they don't have um, vast control over specific territories. But they do; they're, they're still they still exist. And um, like I say all the time in this podcast, you know, ISIS is an ideology. Anyone can pick up a rifle and say that they're ISIS. So it can be really any it can be any guy who just picks up a, an AK-47 and starts firing at government forces who, who's doing this. But uh, it seems that they are connected with ISIS and um, it's getting pretty deadly right now. So I think it's a it's, it's a it's a wild east situation in, in Syria. Just uh, a lot of a lot of uh, combat and a lot of police action taking place. All right. So what I wanted to talk about today specifically, this is going to be the main focus of the show is that there was this really interesting foreign policy essay that was released by Brett McGurk. And um, if you guys don't know who Brett McGurk is, he is a, uh, I guess what you would call a very, very establishment foreign policy advisor. Um, he worked for all three of the last administrations. So he worked for, he was a, he was a policy advisor for 
George Bush, Barack Obama, as well as Donald Trump. And he was one of the main um, architects of the Syria of the Syria policy over the past six years, seven years. So he's been instrumental in our policy in regards to uh, the Assad regime or Assad government and the fight against ISIS. So this guy has is is very very well established, and he was actually one of the one of the advisors that resigned when Trump said that he was going to be pulling out troops out of Syria. And he was all over MSNBC saying how Trump was making a mistake and how he was empowering ISIS and how he was empowering Iran and all this, that, and empowering Russia. And, of course, all the major news outlets were like, oh, look at Trump. He's empowering Russia. Oh, Russiagate. Oh, um, so that's, that, that was a circus that was going on when this guy resigned. Well, he released an essay and he, I found it so oddly transparent about U.S. foreign policy in Syria that I just had, I had to share it with people and I wanted to dissect it on today's show. And basically what this essay is about, he, he it's almost an admission of defeat in Syria. Um, it's an admission of failure of the U.S. goals in Syria. So I found it really, really interesting. It's titled, Hard Truth in Syria, America Can't Do More With Less and It Shouldn't Try. So I'm going to get into it. So over the last four years, I helped lead the global response to the rise of the Islamic State. In an effort that succeeded in destroying an ISIS caliphate in the heart of the Middle East that had served as a magnet for foreign jihadists and a base for launching terrorist attacks around the world. Working as a special envoy for U.S. President Barack Obama and Donald Trump, I helped establish a coalition that was the large of its, largest of its kind in history. 75 countries and four international organizations their cooperations built on the foundation of U.S. leadership and consistency across U.S. administrations. Indeed, the strategy to destroy the ISIS caliphate was developed under Obama and then carried forward with miter modifications under Trump. Throughout, it focused on enabling local fighters to reclaim their cities from ISIS and then establish the conditions for displaced people to return. So what he's talking about right now is that he was one of the architects and um, working with the Shiite militias in Iraq once they sacked Mosul. So he was one of the architects of empowering because it was, it was the Shiite militias with the combination of the Iraqi army that took back Mosul. So he worked on that project. And he also worked on the project of uh, working with the SDF, the Kurds, um, and, and uh, taking back Raqqa. And those are two of the major ISIS strongholds under the ISIS caliphate. So this is what this guy's job was, to form relationships with local militias to, and create a U.S. coalition to combat ISIS. So this is, this is where this guy is coming from. So I'm going to get back into the article. From the outset, the strategy also presumed the U.S. would remain active in the region for a period after the caliphate's destruction, including on the ground in northeastern Syria, where today approximately 2,000 U.S. Special Forces hold together a coalition of 60,000 Syrian fighters known as the Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF. 
the, the SDF, that's the Kurds. They're in the northeastern part of the country, the part where the oil is. Um, all right. So, but late, but in late December 2018, Trump upended this strategy. Following a phone call with Turkish counterpart Recap Tayyip Erdogan, Trump gave a surprise order to withdraw all U.S. troops from Syria, apparently without considering the consequences. Trump has since modified that order. His plan, as of the writing of this essay, is for approximately 200 U.S. troops to stay in northeastern Syria and for another 200 to remain at El Tamp and an isolated base in the country's southeast. The administration also hopes, likely in, the, in vain, that the other members of the coalition will replace the withdrawn U.S. forces with forces of their own. But if anything, this new plan is even riskier. It tasked a small cohort of troops with the same mission as a current U.S. deployment in northeastern Syria, which is 10 times as large. So he's confirming what I've been saying on this podcast, that yes, Trump was going to be withdrawing soldiers, but he was going to leave a force of 400 soldiers. That's exactly what I said, and it seems like that is still the plan that's in place. So I was right. I was right. Don't you love it? That's nothing too crazy to be. It, it was like a 75% chance that anyone would get that right, so I really can't toot my own horn. But, yeah, like I, Trump is is pretty committed to getting out of Syria. Um, I, I never really doubted that, um, despite what a lot of people have been criticizing Trump on. Um, all right, so much remains uncertain about the U.S. withdrawal, but whatever the final troop levels turn out to be, Trump's decision to significantly reduce the American footprint in Syria is unlikely to be reversed. The task, is, the task now is to determine what should come next, what the United States can do to guard its interests in Syria even as it draws down its military presence over the coming months. The worst thing Washington, Washington can do is to pretend that its withdrawal whether full or partial, does not really matter, or that it is merely a tactical move requiring no change in overall objectives. The strategy that Trump dismantled offered the United States its only real chance to achieve a number of interwoven goals in Syria, preventing an ISIS resurgence, checking the ambitions of Iran and Turkey, and negotiating a favorable post-war settlement with Russia. With U.S. forces leaving Syria, many of these goals are no longer viable. So what Brett McGurk is doing right now, it, this is an admission that the U.S. was never really there to fight ISIS. Well, maybe they were to some degree when they got out of control. But their primary focus was to check Iranian and Turkish and Russian ambitions. And uh, we'll get into why that was the primary goal. And I bet you can probably guess why, but we'll get into that later. Um, all right, so Washington must now lower its sights. It should focus on protecting only two interests in Syria, preventing ISIS from coming back and stopping Iran from establishing a fortified military presence there that might threaten Israel. Now, does that come to a surprise? Um, and what I find very perplexing about this is that Iran cannot threaten Israel. They just cannot. And the reasons why Iran can't threaten Israel is because Israel can nuke them. Israel has a far superior superior air force. They have far superior state factors. Um, Iran 
is I don't think I really truly do not believe that Iran is a threat to Israel at all. I think that if there was ever a war between Iran and Israel, Israel would just nuke them. Um, so it wouldn't very it wouldn't last very long. All right. So without leverage on the ground, reaching even those outcomes will require painful compromises. But the alternative in which the U.S. pretends that nothing has changed fails to achieve even these modest goals and further undermines its credibility in, in the process is far worse. This is a bitter pill to swallow after the progress of the last four years. But stripped of other options, the U.S. must swallow it nonetheless. What progress? What progress? If anything, the U.S. has, has, has kept on getting pushed back as far as its ambitions in Syria. I don't understand what progress that he's talking about. If their goal was to placate Iran, or not to placate Iran, that's the wrong word. If their goal was to prevent Iran from getting a bigger presence in Syria, then they completely failed. Iran has a huge presence in Syria. The only reason that they're backing off now is because of U.S. sanctions. And it seems like that probably is more effective, even though I don't believe in sanctions. I don't agree with sanctions and all to punish the civilian population for the government. However, I don't I don't understand what he's saying that there has been that there's been progress in the U.S. foreign policy in Syria. If anything, it's been a lack of progress uh, over the past four years. So I'm not really sure where that's coming from especially since the goal of the U.S., especially during the Obama administration, was Assad must go. Assad, over the past four, since 2016, in reality, Assad had, since the Battle of Aleppo in 2016, the, uh, it was basically the Stalingrad of Syria. That's when, basic, that's when everything changed. That's when people are like, okay, Assad's probably going to win this war. So I, it doesn't really make any sense to, think, to, to call that progress over the past four years. Um, even if you're talking about if your if your uh, definition of progress is uh, preventing Iran from getting a, a bigger presence, that's so. I I don't know what the hell this guy's talking about. All right, defeating the caliphate in September 2014, ISIS was on the march. The group controlled nearly 40,000 square miles of territory in Iraq and Syria, an area an area roughly the size of Indiana, and home to some eight million people. Just think about that. That is a huge swath of land. Eight million people? That's bigger than New York. Well, that's bigger. That's about the size of New York City. So ISIS had a territory and a population under it the size of New York City. Um, it's it's mind-blowing. With over $1 billion per year in revenue, the group used the self-described caliphate as a base to plan and execute terrorist attacks in Europe and, and urge its sympathizers to do the same in the U.S., Closer to, the, to home, ISIS murdered, raped, and enslaved those it considered her, her, heretics or infidels, Christians, Kurds, Shiites, and Yazidis, and also Sunnis who disagreed with the group's ideology. Despite this brutality, and in part because of it, the group exerted a powerful pull. Between 2013 and 2017, more than 40,000 people from over 100 countries traveled to Syria to join ISIS and other extremist groups fighting in the Syrian civil war. Uh, okay, so here's something that I think it's missing from that paragraph. What he should have also included is that these terrorists in Europe, the terrorists that engaged in the attacks, such as the, the Paris shooting as well as the Brussels airport bombing, they were all radicalized in Belgium. 
and they were radicalized in Saudi-funded madrasas. Another thing is, uh, all right, so 40,000 people from one from over 100 countries traveled to Syria to join ISIS. So the serious question that you have to ask yourself is that, did they join ISIS for ideological reasons? And I'm sure a lot of them did. Uh, but how many of these 40,000, which is a huge number, that's, that's 20 battalions of soldiers, um, were they mercenaries or not? Like, were they paid to go there? That's the question I have immediately. 40,000 people from over 100 countries traveled to Syria, and those were from countries, most of them were in North Africa, but were they paid to go there, and who were they paid by? I was on the ground in Iraq in the summer of 2014 when ISIS took the city of Mosul and then advanced on Baghdad. Even as the U.S. Embassy began evacuating staff in preparation for the worst, American diplomats were getting ready to help the Iraqis fight back. Over the ensuing months, we assembled a broad coalition of governments united in their opposition to ISIS. The coalition's plan was to combine military operations against the group with innovative humanitarian and stabilization initiatives, which would ensure that those displaced by ISIS could obtain basic shelter and return home after the fighting has ended. It's a weird uh, group of words. Innovative humanitarian and stabilization initiatives. These stupid foreign, I hate these foreign policy papers. I wish you just said that if you joined the fight against ISIS, then we'll put a roof over your head or we'll provide you with shelter. That would have been the easier way because all those people, a lot of those people in Mosul were homeless. So this part is striking. From the start, U.S. diplomats made clear that this would not be an open-ended campaign to build nations or reshape the Middle East. The goal was to destroy ISIS and help local people organize their own affairs in the aftermath of the group's defeat. I don't understand how the goal wasn't to reshape the Middle East when the first paragraph of your essay, you said the goal was to prevent Iran from gaining influence in Syria. It just contradicts it. It just contradicts your, your statement. It, just contra- it contradicts the U.S. foreign policy. You say that, you say in one sense, it's a reason why that you want to have a presence in Syria and a reason why Obama wanted to have a presence in Syria because he wanted to reshape the Middle East. He wanted to get Assad out of there. U.S. diplomats made clear that this wasn't going to be an open-ended campaign and it wasn't to reshape the Middle East. That just contradicts Obama's foreign policy, the, 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 the guy that you worked for. It's, it's kind of ridiculous. All right. In this, the campaign was a success. Okay. Over the next four years, ISIS lost nearly all the territory it once controlled. Most of its leaders were killed. In Iraq, four million civilians have returned to areas once held by ISIS, a rate of return unmatched after any other recent violent conflict. Last year, Iraq held national elections and inaugurated a new government led by a capable pro-Western leaders focused on further uniting the country. In Syria, the SDF fully cleared ISIS out of its territorial havens in the country's northeast, and U.S.-led stabilization programs helped Syrians return to their homes. In Raqqa, ISIS' former capital, 150,000 civilians out of a displaced population of 200,000 
had returned by the end of 2018. So this is something that's very important to realize. So listen carefully. Baram Salih, the president of Iraq, is very pro-Iran. He invited Iran into the country. So effectively, we're in a position, this is U.S. foreign policy, we are in a position where we are allied with Iran in Iraq, but enemies with Iran in Syria. Baram Salih invited Iran into the country to help them fight Sunni extremists. So we can't touch Iran and Iraq, but we can touch Iran and Syria. So they're fighting on this. Iran fights on the same team as the U.S. in Iraq, but on a different team in Syria. Don't you see? We're through the looking glass. I love saying that. We're through the looking glass, Alice. But we're allied with them in one country. We're enemies with them in another country. It's just, it's so ridiculous. In short, the U.S. campaign against ISIS is not and never was an endless war of the sort that Trump decried in his February 2019 State of the Union address. Yes, it is. And the reason why it's an endless war to fight ISIS is because ISIS is an ideology. Anyone can pick up a rifle and say that they're ISIS. Just like the war on terror is an endless war. All right. It was designed from the beginning to keep the United States out of the kind of expensive entanglements that Trump rightly condemns. Iraqis and Syrians, not Americans, are doing most of the fighting. The coalition, not just Washington, is footing the bill. And unlike the United States' 2003 invasion of, of Iraq, this camp campaign enjoys widespread domestic and international support. It doesn't, it doesn't have a lot of domestic support. Most people don't look favorably on, on the war in Syria. If you ask the average American, why are we in Syria? They're like, I don't know why. Why are we in Syria? Let's get the fuck out of there. It's, 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 this, it's, there's not, do you, you see like the disconnect between like the foreign policy establishment and like the average human being? Like they think that automatically Americans support any foreign entanglement. But I guess there is a point here because most Americans are, are fine watching a drone strike of a ISIS commander getting murked. I myself am actually fine with that. I personally, I mean, I don't. I, I'm a non-interventionist, but I, I don't actually have that big of an issue with with fighting Al-Qaeda and fighting ISIS. I have an issue with state building and lies and using the fight as a fight against ISIS as a pretense to nation build. That's what I don't like. And I don't like it when you say that it never was meant to be an endless war when it clearly is going to be an endless war because there's always going to be ISIS militias there. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Syrian desert in, in eastern Syria and the desert in western Iraq, they're literally huge deserts where you can have a Mad Max scenario forever. Forever. And when you kill, when you kill a terrorist... What happens is that usually another one is created. So it becomes an indefinite war. That's why we've been in the Middle East since 2003, 2001. That's why we've been in the greater Middle East, if you want to include Afghanistan, since 2001, 17 years. Towards the end of 2018, the campaign was approaching an inflection point. The physical caliphate was near defeat, and the coalition was transitioning to a fight against the clandestine ISIS insurgency. Although U.S. policymakers had planned for this transition, there was some d- debate within the government about how, about how long the U.S. should stay in Syria, as well as what its ultimate objectives there should be. Some U.S. officials, especially those in the Pentagon, were focused on completing the original mission, the enduring defeat of ISIS in Syria. This meant destroying the caliphate and, and then staying for a period to help the SDF secure its territory and deny ISIS the ability to return. Yet others, particularly John Bolton, Trump's national security advisor, believed that U.S. forces should remain in Syria until all Iranian forces left and the country's civil war was resolved. This would have represented a vast expansion of the mission and required an indefinite commitment of U.S. troops, something Trump opposed. So, so this is where you get the split. So remember when Trump initially announced the withdrawal from Syria and then John Bolton got on a plane to Tel Aviv and basically started adding demands about Iran leaving Syria and started really just contradicting Trump. And then the Pentagon came out or certain officials in the Pentagon came out and said, we don't take orders from John Bolton. So there, there, you can see that there's splits within the foreign policy establishment and there's splits within the Pentagon when it comes to Middle Eastern issues. No one in the U.S. government had seriously discussed near-term withdrawal, let alone the idea that Washington could simply declare victory over ISIS and then leave Syria. On December 11, 2018, I stood at the State Department podium and explained the U.S. then officially, official policy on Syria. It would be reckless if we were just to say, well, the, fills, the physical caliphate is defeated, so we can just leave now. Eight days later, Trump did just that, declaring via Twitter. How dare he declare anything via Twitter, even though Twitter is the largest news source in the world. We have won against ISIS. And that our boys, our young women, our men, they're coming back. And they're coming back now. This announcement left the campaign in disarray and Washington's allies in disbelief. Washington's allies, meaning Israel. U.S. officials, including me, scrambled to explain the abrupt change, of course, to our partners. After four years of helping to lead the coalition, I found it impossible to effectively carry out my new instructions, and on December 22nd, I resigned. Good for you, Brett. The war ain't over until I say it's over. It's just funny that, like, you see the the, the rush to go uh, placate Israel as soon as Trump makes the announcement. 
Netanyahu's going to be super, super pissed, and he's going to yell at me with that deep, smooth voice of his. <laughs> it's funny. Laugh. All right. Beginning of the end. By the time Trump made his announcement, ISIS caliphate was down to its last few towns in Syria, was witnessing its lowest levels of violence since the onset of the Civil War in 2011. The country was settling into what U.S. officials called the interim end state, temporarily divided into three zones of great power influence. This actually gets really interesting and explains, it basically explains the current dynamics of what's going on really well. The first and largest zone is controlled by the Syrian state. This zone encompasses about two-thirds of the country's territory, of perhaps 70% of its population, and most of its major cities, such as Damascus and Aleppo. It receives heavy military and financial support from one great power, Russia, and one regional power, Iran. The second zone is the opposition enclave in northwestern Syria. Much of this zone is now dominated by Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda Syrian affiliate, uh, Hayat Tar al-Sham, with Turkish-backed opposition groups controlling the rest. The Turkish military protects a ceasefire line, which Ankara negotiated with Iran and Russia, separating the western edge of the Turkish zone from the area controlled by the Assad regime. So I mentioned this in another podcast, but basically what Assad did during the war is that when he was able to start, when he started winning the war, when he started freeing up sources and other parts, mainly when Russia entered the war, um, he was able to free up enemy forces and he pushed them all into northwestern Syria and they all went into Idlib. And what happened once he did, this was a really good move. He pushed them all into the northwestern province and they all started fighting each other. They're like rival drug dealers trying to extort the population. So we pushed these enclaves of ISIS, these different FSA groups, um, or not FSA groups, uh, Free Syrian, yeah, FSA groups, um, Arala Sham, um, which is like the Turkish back group, uh, Al Nusra, which is which is the Al Qaeda group, um, other, you know, there's like a bunch of different militants. Those are just the main ones. He pushed them all into Idlib, and now they fight against each other. The one that emerged as the top brass is the Al-Qaeda. Al-Nusra is like the main one that kind of runs shot in Idlib right now. So Idlib right now is currently infested with Al-Qaeda. Turkey stopped backing Al-Asham. They, they, they don't finance them, or at least they say they don't finance them anymore. So they kind of just were overtaken by Al-Qaeda. Because, I mean, all right, listen, you have to think if Al-Qaeda is still being funded in Idlib, if there's still a financial resource that's going to them. And um, listen, for everyone who's listening for the first time, I just want to be very, very clear when I say these things. I am not anti-Israel in any way. I'm not I'm not anti-Israel. I'm not anti-Semitic. You always have to give that disclaimer. But whenever you talk about geopolitics, when you avoid the subject of Israel, you discredit yourself because you're not, you're, you're, you're ignoring a regional power and what they do. Um, Israel has openly, and it's been reported in Haaretz, the Jerusalem Times, they've openly funded al-Nusra. So they, they've openly funded al-Nusra. They've, also, they, they've been treating uh, wounded al-Nusra commanders. Al-Nusra commanders have gone into Israel for refuge. So they are supporting them. They are, they are financing that group. 
Israel rather have a balkanized Syria with many different parts than a Arab strongman or, or whatever you want to call Assad in power because that's less of a threat to them. The third zone is dominated by the SDF, a.k.a. the Kurds, and backed by Washington and its allies. Once the heart of the ISIS caliphate, this area compromises nearly one-third of Syria's territory with significant energy reserves, great agricultural wealth, and a population of nearly 4 million. France, the UK, and the US all have special forces on the ground in this zone, and the broader coalition helps protect its airspace and contributes to stabilization programs. The US and and allied Syrian opposition groups also control Al-Tanf, which was formerly an ISIS garrison town. Okay, so like I said earlier, most of the natural resources in Syria are located in the Turkish back zone, the SDF, in northwestern Syria where Raqqa is. That's where most of the, the, the natural resources lie, like oil and agriculture and all that. Now, what's interesting, that's in the northwest, so just like kind of envision a map. Um, what's interesting, the Al-Tanf base. Now, that's all the way down in southern Syria, like in the center southern Syria, right on the border of Jordan and Iraq. And where Al-Tanf is strategically located, it's located near a highway. It's located near a highway that goes into Damascus through Iraq to Tehran. So the reason why why the U.S. wants to leave troops in Al-Tanf is because they don't want a land bridge forming from Tehran all the way to Lebanon to procure and reach Hezbollah on the border of Israel. Hope, does that make sense? Hopefully that makes sense. Like the reason why they're in El Tomf right now and the reason why, you know, they're, they're not, they're always going to be, a, there's always going to be a presence of troops in that area. Basically, they kind of serve as meat shields because you can't bomb that area because if you, if you kill an American soldier in Syria, let's just say if a Syrian um, army or uh, a pro-Syria group kills an American soldier, Dude, the retaliation is going to be hell-bent, and it it, it would just be really bad for Syria. So that would never happen. So we'll get into it because this essay actually tackles that in greater detail. As violence in Syria plummeted over the course of 2018, the boundaries between these zones solidified, setting the table for great power diplomacy. I love that word, great power diplomacy. Sounds like a, a term used by uh, Otto van... I think it is. I think it might have been coined by uh, Otto van Bismarck. With forces on the ground and influence over one-third of the country, the U.S. was in a position to play an important role in shaping post-war Syria. Ooh, juicy, juicy. Juicy, juicy, juicy indeed. A major priority for American diplomats was to reach a settlement with the only other great power in Syria... Russia, about the ultimate disposition of territory in the U.S. zone of influence. Washington had been holding bilateral talks with Moscow on Syria since the beginning of Russia's military intervention in 2015. Initially, the goal was to prevent accidental clashes between the U.S. and Russian forces. And that does make sense. Um, So with these three different zones in Syria... Um, and with a lot of the fighting happening uh, within these zones, and you have so many regional players involved, so we're talking about 
like we're talking about our U.S. coalition forces. We're talking about Russian pilots, Syria, Syrian Air Force. We're talking about Iran. We're talking about um, Hezbollah's in there. We're talking about a million different groups. There's so many players, and it's very crowded war field. It's a very, very crowded war field. So uh, in 2015, when Russia, when they joined the war effort on Syria's behalf, the U.S. started talking to them because obviously they didn't want to accidentally shoot down a Russian plane. That would be really bad. Um, Syria did that by accident. If you guys can remember, this happened about six months ago. Syria shot down a Russian plane by accident, and they actually blamed Israel for it because they said that Israel was provoking the, the plane and all this stuff and this, that, and the other thing. But they blamed Israel for it when Syria shot down the Russian plane. Um, is that fair criticism? I don't know. I, I'm not a, an a, a, uh, aviation expert who can decipher, you know, uh, flying patterns and stuff like that. But um, I, I just want—I just want you to picture of how crowded of a war space, and, and that's why the U.S. was actually talking to Russia during the conflict to just prevent any type of overlapping. That's why it's so crazy to me, and this is why I'm—I'm I'm happy that Trump won. Um, why he won over Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton was running on a no-fly zone in Syria. They were talking about putting a no-fly zone so Russian and Syrian aircraft could not fly. That would be a direct, that would be mean war if they flow, if they would shoot down a Russian plane if they flew into the no-fly zone that the U.S. would create that would be over all Syrian territory, which would be insane and provocative. Just that, that's very, very reckless and it's, it's very aggressive. All right. Over time, these talks became a forum for Washington to draw clear boundaries, delineating areas that would be off-limits to Russian and Syrian forces and to militias backed by Iran. This worked because the U.S. was willing and able to enforce these boundaries. In May 2017, American jets bombed Iranian-backed militias as they approached a U.S. position near Al-Tanf. The following month, U.S. jets shot down a Syrian fighter jet as it crossed into the northeastern zone near a U.S. position. And in February 2018, U.S. forces destroyed a group of Russian mercenaries who were attempting to capture an oil field held by SDF and American troops. And with this, you can just see how protective the U.S. is over Al-Tanf. Um, again, Al-Tanf is a very, very, very small um, slither of land in southern the southern Syrian desert. It's a land bridge. They're very, very protective of that. And if Iran approaches it, they will um, shoot. They'll shoot them down. By the fall of 2018, the U.S. was preparing for intensive negotiations with Russia along two sequential tracks. On the first track, Washington would try to encourage the Russians to compel the Syrian regime to cooperate in the U.N.-backed peace talk known as the Geneva Process. This process had been in place since 2012, and I had grown skeptical that it would produce results. But for the first time in years, a number of favorable developments, the reduction in violence throughout Syria, the U.S. presence on the ground, and the strengthening of the U.S.-Russian diplomatic channel had combined to give the process a chance for at least some success. If the Geneva process did not produce breakthrough, U.S. diplomats had prepared a second track for negotiate, negotiating directly with the Russians to broker a deal between the SDF, the Kurds, and the Syrian regime. This deal would have provided 
for the partial return of Syrian state services, such as schools and hospitals to SDF-controlled areas. And inevitable, in, inevitably, unless the United States and its allies were willing to midwife a mini-state in northeastern Syria while granting basic political rights to the region's population. U.S. officials refer to this outcome as the return of the state, not the return of the regime. Any deal would have also allowed the U.S. access to airspace and small military facilities in this area in order to maintain pressure on ISIS and prevent the group's resurgence. Such an arrangement would have met the aspirations of the Syrians who had fought alongside the coalition and ensured their continued safety. It would have also returned basic state services to the Northeast, helping the local population and reducing the risk of an insurgency against SDF and U.S. troops. Russia, moreover, was beginning to accept that the U.S. presence in northeastern Syria would remain until the final defeat of ISIS, a phrase that appeared in a joint uh, communique. I never heard that word in my life communique, or maybe I'm just really stupid and don't know English, from Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin in late 2017. Moscow recognized that a stable post-war settlement would require compromises between Damascus and the SDF. By the end of 2018, the contours of an imperfect but acceptable arrangement were beginning to emerge. So basically, they were trying to broker a deal with Russia where the Kurds could act with some type of uh, autonomy where they would have some type of um, independence from the Syrian regime. Like this, the return to the Syri- to the state uh, refers to just the basic services and stuff like that, schools and whatnot and, and all that stuff, but not necessarily a uh, reunification with the rest of Syria. Um. And what's like, and what's really interesting about that is that I don't understand. I mean, that that was obviously a bandaid over a problem that was way larger. Because when you think about it, if you look at the Kurdish section, if you look in northwestern Syria, excuse me, northeastern Syria, they're landlocked. They're completely landlocked, and they're surrounded by hostiles. Uh, most notably, they're surrounded by Turkey, and Turkey hates them. And he actually discusses this, so um, I will, I will, we will we'll get into that. The U.S. strategy towards Tehran was more adversarial. Adversarial. Iran's military presence in the Syrian regime's zone of influence is significant. If entrenched, it would constitute a major threat to Israel and Jordan, two vital U.S. allies. Tehran also harbors expansionist ambitions in Syria. Its proxy forces have sought to infiltrate the U.S. zone in the northeast, as well as the area surrounding the Al-Taf garrison, which sits on a major roadway between Damascus and Basra. In southern Iraq, they have been deterred only by the presence of U.S. troops and the threat, or in the case of Al-Taf, the use of force. So that's exactly what I was I just said. So they have... So they have soldiers stationed in Al-Tanf strictly so Iran cannot form a land bridge over to Lebanon through and get closer to Israel and Jordan. They're trying to deny them that access. That's why the soldiers in Al-Tanf will, will probably indefinitely remain there. Bolton's declaration that U.S. troops would stay in Syria until all the Iranians left was never realistic. Even with the unlimited resources, which Trump was not prepared to commit, the United States could not hope to fully expel the Iranians from Syria. Iran's military partnership with Syria dates back to the early 1980s. 
Tehran sees the country as one of its most important allies and is willing to pay a high price to preserve its foothold there. Hollow saber rattling serves only to weaken U.S. credibility and distract from more realistic goals containing, containing Iran's presence in Syria, deterring its threats to Israel and using diplomacy to drive a wedge between Tehran and Moscow. And it's really interesting that he points that out. Yes, Syria, it's the question, why is Syria and Iran, why are they allies in the first place? It doesn't seem like they would be allies. Um, Syria is a majority Sunni country. Only the people in power are actually the Alawites who are like crypto Muslims, like they celebrate Christmas and stuff like that. They're not even considered Shiites by other Shiites, by the 12 or majority in Iran. So why are they allies? Well, during the, during the Iranian-Iraq war, um, Iran was essentially all alone. All the other Arab countries got the back of uh, I, the United States, all the other Arab countries, um, the Gulf states, they all took the side of Iraq during the Iranian-Iraq war. Um, Iran's only allies, and this is going to confuse the, the, the hell out of you, Iran's only allies were Syria. Syria had Iran's back during the Iran-Iraq war, because mainly because the two Ba'ath parties between Syria and, Syria and Iraq, they both had the Ba'ath party. That, that was the the power in both countries, but there was a split between the two Ba'ath parties. They hated each other. Syria hated Iraq. So they took Iran's back during the Iranian-Iraq war, and Iran's never forgotten that. They've always been like, all right, cool. Like, we got one we got one Arab state asset. We got to keep this asset in there. Um, it, another thing that's interesting is that um, – during the Iranian-Iraq war, the U.S. was heavily funding uh, Saddam Hussein. They were getting all the latest in military gear and all that. They were actually secretly selling stuff to Iran. Um, they were secretly selling weapons to Iran, but at four times the price. But the big backer of Iran during the Iranian-Iraq war was Israel. Because Israel saw Iraq as a bigger threat than Iran at the time. Iraq was the powerhouse of all the Arab states, and it's also closer to Israel proper. So they actually had their back. Um, but it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic, to say the least. Um, but yeah, Tehran was never going to let Syria go. Like, they just, they, they did not want that to happen. They did not want a Sunni, a radical Sunni group or a radical Sunni extremist government to somehow take power there. That would have been a direct threat to Iranian interest. Um, all right. In the spring of 2018, Putin uh, publicly stated that Russia wanted to see all foreign military, military forces, meaning Iranian, Turkish, and U.S. forces, leave Syria after the end of the civil war. U.S. diplomats began to exploit this opening, demanding that Russia prove that it could remove the Iranians from key areas of the country, such as the region bordering Israel and Jordan. As part of these negotiations, the Russians claimed that they could keep Iranian-supported unit, supported units at at least 50 miles from the Golan Heights and agreed to allow UN peacekeepers to monitor a demilitarized zone there. If the Russians could accomplish this to the satisfaction of the Israelis, Washington said it might be willing to discuss a partial withdrawal from the state of its areas. So the deal was that if Russia could prove that they can boot out Iran out of Syria, then they would 
then they would start taking that conversation about leaving a little bit more seriously. But this actually leads into the next part. So the U.S. coordinated its approach with Israel, which in 2017 began launching airstrikes against Iranian military assets in Syria that it considered a threat. Washington had no legal authority to target Iranian forces inside Syria, except in cases of self-defense. But Israel had every right to deny Iran the ability to use Syrian territory for missile systems and other offensive technology. The combination of Israel, Israeli hard power, American diplomacy, and the U.S. military presence gave Washington a powerful bargaining chip with the Russians. Putin, Putin views Russia's relationship with Israel as central to his Middle East strategy. The United States was never going to remove every Iranian from Syria— well, of course not. That would be impossible. But by working with the Israelis and leveraging its own influence in Syria, it could have secured a measure of Russian cooperation in deterring Iranian expansion, uh, expansionism. And that's what you're seeing right now. Um, there was actually an, there were, there was an Israeli air raid on Syria a couple days ago. Um, they're constantly hitting Iranian targets or so-called Iranian targets right now. Um, to try to get them out, and they don't want anyone getting close to the uh, Golan Heights. Um, they are very protective over the Golan Heights. Uh, the reason why is because the Golan Heights is probably one of the most strategic areas in the Middle East as far as military con is concerned, especially in the Levant because it has that high ground. So they're able to put up their missile systems and all that stuff right there. So anything that approaches that, they're going to bomb. Um, all right. The U.S. presence in Syria was also critical for managing relations with Turkey, which had been a problematic partner from the outset of the anti-ISIS campaign. In 2014 and 2015, Obama repeatedly asked Erdogan to control the Turkish border with Syria, through which ISIS fighters and material flowed freely. Ooh, that's not good. Erdogan took no action. In late 2014, Turkey opposed the anti-ISIS coalition's effort to save the predominantly Kurdish city of Kobani in northern Syria from a massive ISIS assault that threatened to end in a civilian massacre. Six months later, Turkey refused coalition requests to close border crossings in towns that had become logistical hubs for ISIS, such as Tal Abyad, even after U.S. diplomats had told the Turks that if they did not control their border, defeating ISIS would be impossible. So if you're curious, where did ISIS and where did all these militia groups, where did they get tow missiles, where did they get all these Toyota trucks, where did they get all this, these, cra these crazy weapons? They're militias. And Syria doesn't have a Second Amendment. They don't have gun rights. So they can't just go pick up, go to the store and they pick up an AK-47 somewhere. So they got to be getting the weapons from somewhere. The weapons that were that ISIS was getting, the weapons that all these different militia groups were getting, were primarily being smuggled down through Turkey. And there, what was also smuggled down, interesting enough, were large amounts of sarin gas. Large amounts of sarin gas were smuggled down through Turkey. So, I don't know. It's kind of weird. Faced with Turkey's intransigence, the U.S. began to partner more closely with the Syrian Kurdish fighters known as the People's Protection Units, the YPG, who had defended Kobani. The YPG struck the first blow against ISIS in Syria, and it soon proved adept at recruiting tens of thousands of Arabs into what would later become the SDF. So basically what he's saying is that Turkey wasn't a reliable 
partner in controlling their border and there was a lot of weapons that were being smuggled through. So that's why the U.S. had to partner with the SDF, the Kurds, in order to secure that border. And Turkey was like, what the hell? Turkey hates the Kurds. Turkey has been ethnically cleansing the Kurds for many years. Turkey objected to U.S. support of the SDF. Ankara claimed that the group's Kurdish component was controlled by the Kurdistan Workers' Party, that's the PKK, a Kurdish separatist group that has fought on an on-again, off-again war against Turkey for nearly four decades. Uh, the U.S. designated the PKK as a terrorist organization in uh, 1997. So the U.S. has actually recognized that group as a terrorist group. Um, although Washington never found any instances of YPG members crossing the border to fight in Turkey, nor evidence that the PKK had opera operational control over the SDF, or that U.S.-applied weapons were making their way into Turkey, U.S. policymakers took pains to address Ankara's concerns. The U.S. limited its military aid to the SDF. As a result, the group's fighters went into combat without body armor or helmets and with, the only, with only limited uh, antamine equipment. On one of my visits to Raqqa, I learned that SDF fighters purchased flocks of sheep to detect and ignite ISIS mines. Holy shit. So what they were doing... I guess because, uh, listen, U.S. the U.S. and Turkey are NATO allies, so they have to always side with the Tur with the Turks at the end of the day. So they were undersupplying them, and, send, and they were going sent into battle, and they were so underarmed that they were they were tying bombs to sheep to detect and ignite ISIS mines. Talk about resourcefulness! I'm sure PETA wouldn't be happy. For months, the U.S. attempted to placate Erdogan by delaying urgent SDF operations such as the campaign to eject ISIS from C the Syrian town of Manbij, which the group was using as a hub to plan and execute attacks in Europe. Washington even sent its best military strategists to Ankara, where they tried to devise a plan to liberate Raqqa with fighters from the Turkish-backed Syrian opposition. In the end, it became clear that a joint plan with Turkey would require as many as 20,000 U.S. troops on the ground. Both Obama and Trump rejected that option, and in May 2017, Trump decided to directly arm the YPG to ensure that it could take Raqqa from ISIS. 20,000 U.S. troops. We're talking about two battalions. If a battle were to engage, if that, if, if, if there was a joint operation between the U.S. and Turkey to take back Raqqa, you would have seen about 300 dead soldiers around that number. I think, but I believe around 700 or so soldiers died, or no, actually way more, way more when I think about it. I think it was about 2,000 soldiers died uh, from the U.S.-backed coalition. So you would have saw a really, really, really big, it would have been really bad. The U.S. public would have would have been so against it that it just never would have happened. It, there would have been just many American casualties if there was an actual, if there were boots on the ground taking back Raqqa. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.
That's Yahoo Finance, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, so that's why Trump, he's like, all right, screw this. I'm back in the Kurds. Um, okay, this is, ve- this is very, very interesting. So American diplomats were able to manage the resulting tensions with Turkey thanks to the U.S. military presence in Syria. If Turkey said there was a problem on the border, U.S. forces could ensure that the border remained calm and stable. The U.S. also repeatedly invited Turkish officials to come into northeastern Syria and see the situation for themselves, which they pointedly refused to do. Ooh. I will not be going to anywhere where Kurd is located. When Turkey threatened to attack the Kurds across the border, as often as it did, they did this all the time. Um, they actually did bomb the Kurds a number of times um, in a town called Afrin, where they annihilated them. Um The United States assured Erdogan that it would deter any demonstrated threat to Turkey from Syria. As long as U.S. troops were present, there was no reason for the Turkish military to intervene. And Ankara knew that. Jeopardizing American lives would carry grave consequences for its relations with Washington. So the U.S. was just like, they they put U.S. soldiers there as meat shields so Turkey couldn't hurt invade the Kurds. So basically they were like, all right, we don't want you to support the Kurds. Um, You're doing this anyway. The U.S. was like, you can't do anything about it because if you do, you're going to kill one of our troops, which is going to be a big issue. So the withdrawal of U.S. forces, however, removes this deterrent. Oh, how dare he use our soldiers as uh, meat shields? There is now a risk that Turkey could launch an incursion into northeastern Syria, similar to one to the one it carried out in January 2018 in Afrin. Yeah, that's the one I was just talking about, where they just killed a bunch of Kurds in Afrin. They tried to take the city, and the Turks were like, hell no. Syria was like, all right, we're turning off our air defense systems. You go ahead, take them out, and then that's what they did. Um, it was bad for the Kurds. It kind of eliminated the possibility of the Kurds ever getting a Kurdish state. Um, Afrin's a Kurdish district in northwestern Syria, not protected by U.S. troops. All right. There, the Turkish military, working with its Islamist allies in the Syrian opposition, attacked the YPG, displaced over 150,000 Kurds in nearly half of Afrin's population, and repopulated the province with Arabs and Turkmen from elsewhere in Syria. This operation was not a response to any genuine threat, but a product of Erdogan's ambition to extend Turkey's borders, which he feels were unfairly drawn by the by the 1923 Treaty of Louisiane. I have sat in meetings with Erdogan and heard him describe the nearly 400 miles between Aleppo and Mosul as Turkish security zone, and his actions have backed up his words. In 2016, Turkey deployed its military forces north of Mosul without the permission of the Iraqi government or anyone else. Further deployments were blocked only by the presence of U.S. Marines. Erdogan would now like to repeat his Afrin operation in the northeast. This would involve sending Turkish forces 20 miles into Syria, removing the YPG, in much of the Kurdish civilian population, and establishing a so-called safe zone. So what he's saying is that this isn't due... Turkey, Turkey's ambitions aren't for security. Turkey's ambitions are to extend its borders. They're imperial ambitions. And what you're going to see later is that the SDF is going to make an alliance with the Syrian government, because that's their only way out, like to become part of Syria. 
Uh, all right. So the U.S. military presence bought time for U.S. diplomats to secure a long-term arrangement that might, lead, that might reasonably satisfy Turkey while deterring Erdogan's grand ambitions and protecting the SDF and Kurdish fighters. Withdrawing before such an arrangement is in place risks a catastrophe. A Turkish invasion that would lead to massive civilian displacement, fracture the SDF, and create a vacuum in which extremist groups such as ISIS would thrive. So basically, he's saying that this is a, this is an argument that, that comes from a lot of people who are even anti-war, like Noam Chomsky. The U.S. cannot they cannot abandon the Kurds. Well, you know what? My position personally is why can't they just become part of Syria? You know, like that state's not going to last without sea access. It's cut off. It has an unfriendly neighbor. The state will never thrive by itself. Yeah, they have oil resources, but they're going to have to go through unfriendly neighbors to get that to sea. So there's a huge problem with that state just geographically existing. In order to export their oil resources, they'd have to export them out of the Northeast to the Mediterranean Sea. They'd have to go through Syria anyway, so... it just doesn't really make any sense. They don't have like just the importance of sea access to a country like makes or breaks a state. Like it's impossible to be up to be a power player almost if you do not have access to sea. It's that important. And if a Kurdish state doesn't have access to sea, then there's no way that they're going to be a legitimate state, um, especially when there's their neighbors hate them. The U.S. military presence in Syria was also important for managing Washington's relations with the Arab states. The specter of three former imperial powers, Iran, Russia, and Turkey, determining the fate of Syria, a majority Arab state, has unsurprisingly generated Arab pushback, particularly from Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE. And with much of the Syrian opposition now either dominated by Islamists or reduced to the status of a Turkish proxy, these states have began their efforts to return Damascus to Arab to the Arab fold. Now that's that is pretty interesting that he admits that. I, I just love the transparency that much of the proxies are Islamist. Like the Syrian opposition has been reduced to Islamist. And I just love the transparency right here. I'm surprised by it, to be completely honest. I'm I'm surprised that there's no narrative of them trying to still pretend like they're moderate rebels and now that you see that now that all the other arab states that were originally against them because the arab world kind of ganged up on them saudi arabia uae qatar all these countries they ganged up on them and now they're they're creating they're they're reestablishing their relationships with with syria it's it's the writing's on the wall the war is over it's been over um, the only real opposition to, to Syria at this point is Israel. The U.S. has opposed its Arab allies' push to normalize ties with Damascus, judging that this would reduce the pressure on Syrian President Bashar al-Assad to participate in the Geneva process. As long as U.S. troops were on the ground in Syria and leading a successful campaign against ISIS, American diplomats could speak with authority when asking their Arab partners to refrain from re-engaging with Assad. The U.S. presence provided a check against the Iranian and Turkish expansion that the Arab states feared. As recently as December 2018, Washington had assured its Arab allies that the U.S. troops would remain on the ground in Syria for a significant period of time. This assurance helped secure large investments from Saudi Arabia and the UAE. 
in support of civilian stabilization efforts in areas once held by ISIS, including the city of Raqqa. You know what's really annoying is that Saudi Arabia was funding these Islamist groups. Like, don't give me this, this, don't, oh, Jesus, it's just so hypocritical. These Arab states that were against Syria, they were the ones that were fined. They were providing a lot of the finances as well as the ideological backing of groups like ISIS. It's just so hypocritical. Like, screw them. The Arab states, they see the writing on the wall right now. They rather not have a complete Persian presence there. That's why they're renewing their ties with them. That's why a lot of people are against MBS, to be completely honest. MBS, he didn't go along with the Syria plan. He focused his efforts on Yemen, which is even more brutal and horrible. I'm not trying to defend him, but that's a lot of the a lot of the ill will comes from that. But yeah, Arab states are starting to put their embassies back in Syria. Trump's promised withdrawal has upended, upended this situation. The U.S. will now struggle to convince its Arab allies that it is committed player in Syria. And since Iran and Turkey are advancing agendas in Syria that diverge sharply from those of the Arab states, it will be hard for U.S. diplomats to tell their Arab partners not to pursue their own interests as they see fit, including by, including by working with the Syrian regime. Washington could, could threaten to sanction the Arab states, but such threats are a sign of weakness when used against friends. Jesus Christ. Even like the, the thought of sanctioning them for supporting Syria is just so insane and such it's so irresponsible. Um, it was no surprise that the UAE reopened its embassy in Damascus, Damascus shortly after Trump announced the U.S. withdrawal. Other states can be expected to follow its lead. So, yes, Arab states are trying to get back with the, the, the plan's done. All right. The, the plan to destroy Syria is over. We're reaching the finale. Hard truths. The U.S. deployment in Syria made it possible for the U.S. to stand toe to toe with Russia, contain Iran, restrain Turkey, hold the Arab states in line, and most important, prevent a resurgence of ISIS. Trump's initial order to fully withdraw U.S. troops forfeited all those advantages. How dare Trump do that? You got to keep those Arab states in line. His recent amendment to that order, which permits 200 troops to remain in the Northeast and 200 to remain at Al-Tanf in the hope that other coalition troops will eventually make up the balance, can make matters even worse. I don't understand how that would make matters worse. Let's see what he's getting at. All right. Trump's new plan has not halted his original withdrawal order. Over the coming months, the U.S. will be significantly reducing its troop levels in Syria without knowing whether the coalition will send replacements, which will make planning difficult and increase the risk of those troops that remain. Other coalition forces, moreover, moreover are unlikely to deploy in, a, in sufficient numbers. In Iraq, the coalition has 22 contributing military partners. In Syria, it has three, France, the United States, and the U.K., the French and British deployments are small, and thanks to domestic political pressures in both countries, won't be increased by much, if at all. To make matters worse, the mission for the 200 U.S. troops in the Northeast will apparently expanded to include not only the defeat of ISIS, but also the maintenance of a safe zone in the Turkish border region and the defense of the U.S. zone against Iranian, Russian, or Syrian infiltration. There's too much 
for 200 troops to accomplish. It would have been difficult for even 2,000. Asking such a small force to pursue such an expansive mission introduces a major risk that could be avoided by maintaining the U.S. presence at its current level. Okay. So, I think you get the point. This guy is completely against the withdrawal of Syria. And the under the pretext of that, we gotta we gotta play hardball with all these uh, international players. Most importantly, Iran and Russia are the ones that are highlighted. Um, all right, let's see his grand conclusion. The best thing that Trump could do would be to reverse his withdrawal order. But if he does not, the U.S. cannot pretend that by leaving a handful of troops in Syria, it can avoid the need to rethink its strategy. Washington must accept some hard truths. The first is that Assad's not going anywhere. He's a mass murderer and a war criminal. The war criminal. I'm surprised he didn't throw the chemical weapons in there. But at, at this late stage, there is no chance that the U.S. or anyone else will unseat him. Washington does not need to accept Assad's role or engage with his regime, but it should no longer drain U.S. credibility and prestige by insisting that he must go or that he must reform his own regime out of existence in Geneva. And although the U.S. can continue to pressure Damascus with sanctions, the economic pain it can inflict pales in comparison to what the regime has already suffered. Since 2011, Syria has sent the steepest, has seen the steepest GDP collapse of any country since Germany and Japan at the end of World War II. Washington should use targeted sanctions to pursue more limited goals, such as ensuring that Syrian refugees can return from Jordan and Lebanon and that the U.N. is allowed to operate throughout the country, including, it, including in the SDF-controlled areas of the Northeast. Using sanctions in pursuit of unachievable aims, such as the removal of Assad, will only create black markets that benefit extremists and increase suffering of the ordinary Syrians. At least he acknowledges all this. Like At least he acknowledges the, the, the real harm that sanctions do to a country, how they actually hurt the average citizen and not the government. At the mo what really happens is that when you sanction a country, it only causes the people of that country to unite even further with their so-called bad regime or their their killer regime or whatever you want to call it. But yes, this guy actually gets the point. He's saying that you have to just remain there indefinitely forever. That's the plan? To, lay, to stay in Syria forever? To stay in there forever? Because they're always, Iran is always going to have a presence there. It's their backyard. It's their sphere of influence. Russia has bases there. Russia has an interest of not letting Syria go completely jihadist because if that did, if Syria went completely like just nuts, if they just were like Saudi Arabia, that would create a bridge into the Chechnyan terrorists in southern Russia. They don't want that. They don't want closer. They don't want that stability near their borders. Putin didn't go into Syria out of some humanitarian mission to help Bashar al-Assad and destroy ISIS. He did it for his own interest. He they did it for their they did it for Russia. They did it to prevent an influx of Wahhabist extremists going into southern Russia, number one. And number two, they wanted to protect their their only warm part, uh, warm water port. They have a warm part, a water port. They don't, Russia is very cold. They don't have that kind of port access and they need it. They need that Mediterranean influence. That matter, that port was built back in the 1960s to, to match up with the U.S. fleets that were created in Italy. So it's, it makes perfect sense for them to be there. It's in their own geopolitical interest. You're not booting them out. 
and just like the, just like the drain of having soldiers in there forever. Like that's the other. That's like you you acknowledge that the sanctions are going to be doing more harm than good. That Assad is not leaving. You acknowledge all these things, but yet you want to have a an a, a, a illegal military presence there. I just don't understand how you can come to both conclusions at the same time. That like this is how the foreign establishment that thinks, and it's just very very troubling to me. A second related truth is that the Arab states will now re-engage with Damascus. Resistance to this trend from Washington will only frustrate the Arab states and encourage them to conduct their diplomacy behind Washington's back. Oh, if you do that, if you're okay. It's kind of, it sounds like a girl who gets mad at another girl because she's like friends with a girl who called her fat back in like fifth grade. A better approach would be for the U.S. to work with its Arab partners to craft a realistic agenda for dealing with Damascus. For instance, by encouraging the Arab states to condition their renewed relations with Syria on confidence-building measures from the Assad regime, such as the general amnesty for military-aged males who fled the country or joined opposition groups and now want to return to regime-controlled territories, limited conditional Arab openings to Damascus might also begin to dilute Iran and Russia's monopoly of influence in Syria. I, I don't know. I think that's a tall order. Um, we're not taking back, like any Western country is not taking back uh, people who are fighting on the opposition in Syria who are linked to jihadist groups or, or, or crazy groups. Why should Syria have to do that? And yeah, you're right. Like uh, Arabs, if an influx of Arab influence there would probably push, uh, it, it, that would probably be the best hope. So I agree with that. The U.S. must also accept that Turkey, although a treaty ally, is not an effective partner. U.S. diplomats continue to hope that by working with Turkey on Syria, they can break Ankara's drift toward authoritarianism and a foreign policy that works against U.S. interests. They cannot. Turkey was a problematic ally well before any disagreement over Syria. Over the past decade, Ankara has helped Iran avoid U.S. sanctions, held U.S. citizens hostage, and used migration as a tool to blackmail Europe. It's a very, very effective tool to threaten Europe with migration. Um, that's what Libya did. And look what happened. More recently, it has begun to purchase Russian anti-aircraft systems over the objections of NATO and have, ha has actively supported, along with China, Iran, and Russia, President Nicolas Maduro's authoritarian regime in Venezuela. Jesus Christ, I can't believe we're going here. Turkey wants U.S. support for its project to extend its territory 20 miles into northeastern Syria, even as it refuses to do anything about al-Qaeda's entrenchments in northwestern Syria. Washington should have no part of this cynical agenda. It should make clear to Ankara that a Turkish attack on the SDF, even after U.S. withdrawal, will carry serious consequences for the U.S.-Turkish relations. It's kind of funny because, so, yeah, that is true. Um... Turkey says that they're going to be buying S-400s from or the deal is already in place. And we know what the U.S. did in response. They're like, all right, we're not going to sell you F-35. And Turkey's like, okay, <laughs> sure, thanks. <laughs> okay, we don't, we don't want them. Finally, the U.S. must recognize that Russia is now the main power broker in Syria. Washington has no relations with Damascus or Tehran, so we'll have to work with Moscow to get anything done. Russia and the U.S. have some overlapping interests in Syria. Both want the country to retain its territorial integrity and to deny a safe haven to ISIS and al-Qaeda, and both have close ties with Israel. 
The Syrian crisis cannot be resolved without direct engagement between Moscow and Washington, and the U.S. should isolate the Syrian problem from other aspects of his troubled adversarial relationship with Russia. That's probably the best thing that he said in this entire in this entire piece because, yeah, we're gonna have to co- the U.S. is gonna have to cooperate with Russia on Syria. Unfortunately, that's the that's the inconvenient truth. Um, they cannot be an, an, an antagonist in that country because it's just going to cause a lot of ill will. It will just it, it's just there's no point to do that. You need to cooperate with them. We're talking about just very 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 hostile terrorist groups, and I think that should take priority, right? All right, back to reality. Given these hard truths, the U.S. will fail if it continues to pursue grand, grand objectives in Syria. Instead, Washington should realign its ends with a newly limited means. It must focus now on two interests, denying Iran a fortified military presence that might threaten Israel and preventing a resurgence of ISIS. And that's true. You know what? Like, do you know what I think ISIS— Here's the thing with Israel that's, that's always perplexing. They're so hawkish in Iran. I think that a Sunni Wahhabist group like ISIS would end up being a bigger threat to them. I think that if there was ever a link between a if there was a Sunni link or Sunni Wahhabi link that ever hooked up with um, Hamas, would that that would be the greatest military threat to Israel? I don't think Iran is, frankly. Denying Iran as a fortified military presence is a far more modest aim than the one stated by Bolton and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Before Trump issued his withdrawal order, Bolton had declared that U.S. forces would stay in Syria. So long as the Iranian menace continues throughout the Middle East. Jesus. So long as the Iranian menace continues throughout the Middle East. That's That's such typical talk. Speaking to an audience in Cairo this past January, Pompeo declared that the U.S. would expel every last Iranian boot. We'll get every one of them dirty Persians out of this country. This shortly after Trump had ordered every last American boot to leave. These were not realistic objectives before Trump's withdrawal decisions, and they ring even more hollow afterwards. So, yeah, like, he is completely right. All this back and forth, all this contradiction from Mike Pompeo and John Bolton is, like, ridiculous because there's no way that they could achieve their goals with the decision to withdraw troops. And that's kind of, like, the main thesis of the article, if you couldn't tell. Um this is this is how it ends. So what the U.S. can and should be should do instead is lend diplomatic support to Israel and its military denies Iran the ability to use Syria as a staging ground for U.S. military strikes against Israel. This is a goal shared by Russia, which is anxious to preserve good relations with the Israeli government and wants to prevent Syria from becoming a battleground between Israel and Iran. The aim for of forestalling Iranian military entrenchments in Syria could serve as the basis for trilateral diplomacy among Israel, Russia, and the U.S. If pursued smartly, such diplomacy could also begin to drive a wedge between Russia Iran, and Iran over Syria. And that's right. I think that's probably the best thing that they could possibly do. Um, all right. I There's still some more to this article, but I've gone on long enough. That is the main argument right there, that like the, 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 the contradictory uh, nature of a lot of what's being said in this just doesn't make very much sense. Well, we're over an hour and 20 minutes. I think this is the perfect time to wrap everything up. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today at Bro History. Make sure that you like and uh, subscribe. 
uh, give it a rating, um, all that stuff. Uh, rate, review, podcast, and uh, give me some feedback on this episode. Let me know if you liked it or not. Um, you can find me at Henry Zamoda at Henry Zamoda on uh, on Twitter. All right, peace, guys. feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.